was a good influence and kind of like if I could socialize with someone in a bad mood or a bad place, even if I kind of have a bad experience of it, they generally are going to have a decent one. Or it's like, I don't know, I just kind of have some like kind of uh, resistance to avoiding people who are going to be problematic. Okay. Out of, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's so that's not, a, that's not bad advice. So, by the way, guys, I just turned the recorder on. And so, welcome to Friday evening Sangha. And Corey and I are discussing his question um, about other people that, in fact, um, yeah. Well, just to clarify real quick, if you don't, can I just throw it in there? Absolutely. It's, it's basically like when we hear, we, when we sense we're about to do something that will lead to a bad outcome. And it could be with socializing with negative people. It could be about like staying up late. It, th the problem I've been having is with the very small things. And it's kind of like the voice of wisdom is quiet and I could kind of hear it, but it's just so easy to kind of be like, well, I'm just going to stay up half an hour late or, well, I'm just going to socialize with these people because why not, you know? Um, and like, that's the problem I've been having is I keep running into these bad situations on different levels that I feel like I should be more wise than, but because right. it's so subtle, I just fall into it so easily. All right. Okay. Well, there are several things then that we can talk about here one is choosing wisely who we associate with and that that does not necessarily mean that they're uh in the dhamma but that would be a good idea then in fact Corey, what i would recommend is is that you use skype because alex for one and all of the other guys here uh on a regular basis are on skype and we do have a sangha going. And so uh, if you're wanting to associate with um, wise people, we've, we're beginning to do that together. And so I think I mentioned this to you before, but now that you're bringing it up, I think that it would be a good point to kind of to press that uh, it's really good for all of the people who listen to these um, uh, that are on Skype is to start chatting when you're i mean everybody just browses the internet and when you come across a piece of dhamma especially if you're out looking for the dhamma then posting that is really wise for all of the people to uh, get a load of even if it is wrong that's still okay so uh and why would that be is because that will cause even a bigger better discussion And, and so that's the first thing that I would recommend is, is that begin to figure out that you have a choice over the people that you're going to associate with. And that we can actively go seek out people who are worthy of our time. So the next point is, is that those kind of people other than within a community like we've got going here or in a water or someplace like that, that we're actually going to uh, be working with people who um, back in the 1970s, we used the word button. Maybe pushes my buttons or I pushed his buttons. Do you know what I'm talking about there? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, all right. So what you're saying is, is that you know that the people that you're dealing with have buttons and that we do what we can to make sure that we don't press their buttons. But if we do accidentally, they'll give us a little warning before they actually blow up. They would generally have to push somebody's buttons two or three times, and that can be done in two or three seconds. But if we're more careful and more slow, we can find out which direction people are, are kind of going in. And this is actually back to the fact that we begin to treat other people the way that we treat ourselves. The habit of the way that we treat ourselves is the way we wind up treating other people. So if we're critical of ourselves, we're going to be critical of other people. It's the same habit. It's like having a gun. It doesn't it doesn't matter that you're spraying bullets. The question is, is which direction is the barrel pointed? That's the important thing is look at look at the object or look at the focus or look at what you're looking at. Um, wherever your gun is pointed, that's where the bullets are going to to go. So if you're um, wise about what somebody's buttons are, then you can avoid pushing those buttons unless you've got a reason. Like in the situation that I'm in, I find actual good reasons to intentionally set it up so that I push that button <laughs> just right, because that also helps wake people up. <laughs> or it or it drives them away completely, which is also a good thing. Then I don't have to deal with them. <laughs> Um, and so that's also the choice that we have. Are we going to push other people's buttons? And how are we going to do that? If we have the intention to help them wake up, then it's actually a good thing to push that button so that when the button fires or goes off, you can say, aha, look at that. <laughs> that in fact, every one of us is really, really slow. Every human being that I know of uh, has an overestimation of themselves about how wise they are and and um, their the knowledge of what's going on on the inside and their ability to change. What we can call that attitude is delusion. That we are all delusional. And so sometimes we have to um, actually be confronted. Um, I remember this is actually a, a funny incident. There were uh, in the 1950s, the store that uh, my mom took me to had very, very um, fancy, ornate um, fountain pen tips that designed to do calligraphy. And to the to the eye of a six year old, these are arrowheads. And so I steal a few. I put them in my pocket. And when I get home, my mother finds these things. And she asked me what I was doing with them, you know. Why was I taking uh, the, uh, the tips of calligraphy pens? Uh, she actually took me back to that store to give those pens back to, that, to the lady who was there. And she, 
because they were actually, to be honest with you, I remember the price of those. They were five cents each. There was nothing much to it. And the, the, the clerk didn't want to make much to it either, but my mom did. That was a really important education. She really pushed my buttons about shoplifting. Didn't stop me completely, but it surely slowed me down. And so um, it's actually okay to push people's buttons. You just have to be ready for what falls out of their slot machine. <laughs> I guess that was the thing is that I just kind of, <clears throat> you're talking about, and uh, it's a kind of an, a mentality that I know how to play. Uh, it's like the fool or, um, you know, a really interesting thing is uh, the mythology of the Hayoka, which is like a Native American kind of jester. And what they do is they kind of um, make a play of things. They're like a jester and they'll, you know, play the fool to get a reaction out of somebody. But really, they do it consciously and it's, they're pushing people's buttons by acting like a fool. And they want you to act a certain way. And um, I think I I know how to do that. And but it's sometimes it's like you're just not ready for the blow up because you think you're going to. You think it's okay, and, and you want to show someone how irrational or unreasonable they're being, and then they just get so defensive and aggressive, and then they kind of and you and and the, and you feel it. You know, you feel what they're feeling, and you're like, God, this feels like terrible. Why did I even try to help this person in this way? And so uh, I guess it's but that's yeah, because it's kind of you bought it. That's the whole point. Now, the first thing back to that issue about the jester. It's the American, the Native American uh, jesters, which, by the way, do their own version of kind of a, a Native American clown suit, is the same thing as the Joker that's in the courts. Okay. Yeah. Nowadays, for the common people, it's the stand-up comedian, and the stand-up <laughs> comic can push buttons in a way that no one else can that people will actually go to a comedy show and then when their buttons are pushed, they can deal with that because of the setting. Mm. And sometimes they don't. And sometimes when the comic buys into the hecklers, he loses his whole career because he lost it. Um, on Seinfeld, there was one of the actors on Seinfeld several years ago that he was doing after the series finished. He was doing some stand-up comedy, and he pushed somebody's buttons, and they pushed him back, and he he freaked out and got all over the uh, the internet and in the, the news and basically lost his career. Does anybody know the story that I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, it was Kramer. Pardon, what was his name? It was the actor who played Kramer. Kramer, <laughs> that's his name, exactly. So, don't be a Kramer in that regard. Don't buy into what they say when you push their buttons. Whether you push their buttons accidentally or on purpose or it's because it's the situation or whatever it is, people's buttons get pushed and they react to it. And your job is to not react to their buttons getting pushed. And the only way that we can learn to do that is by practice. 
And guess who was the best practice dummy? <laughs> uh, the mirror, the shadow. Right, exactly. That this is actually what the actual deep practice of Anapanasati is, is to actually go looking for our buttons in the sense of how do I feel right now? What kind of thoughts am I having now and how do they affect me? And recognizing that every time that you've got a choice, that's the beautiful part. It doesn't matter that you get your buttons pushed. What matters is that you can make a choice about how you're going to respond to them. This is the important part. Get this clearly. Everyone has a choice. Now, um, those buttons, by the way, uh, the wiring for the buttons happened in our childhood. That we set up our responses to situations. We practice those, and that's how we grow, grew up. So that the buttons that we developed when we were three, five, six years old are the same buttons that we have nowadays. And that one of the ways that we could deal with those buttons is by, um, let us say, uh, by avoidance. In fact, uh, the sutta that I'm thinking about, uh, the Saba Asaba Sutta, we can think of those buttons as the way that we would do, deal with any of the Asava. And there's a whole long list of things. We can, we can uh, deal with those buttons by knowledge. We could deal with those buttons by avoidance. We can deal with those buttons by usage. Okay, those are the way that we can think of it. All right, so we deal with them by knowledge, by recognizing what buttons we have and what buttons other people have. That's the important thing is if we know where those buttons are, now we have a choice about what we're going to do with those buttons. If we don't know what those buttons are, then good luck. <laughs> and and so uh, in, in that regard, we can continue with this particular sutta in the sense of, well, what are the things then that we should be knowledgeable of? What are actually the buttons, at least in the sense of categories? And the Buddha talks about the buttons are in three different groups or three different categories. One is personality view. Okay, who am I? In fact, that's where everybody carries most of their buttons. Is when somebody says you are this, that, and the other thing, that you don't want to be known as this, that, or the other thing. You're a thief. You're a liar. You're a crook. You're a uh, stupid person. Any of these kind of things. Oh, um, you're angry. When we don't like those things, that's probably because we've got some sort of rule saying you're not supposed to be stupid. You're not supposed to be angry. You're not supposed to uh, whatever. And so that brings in the second kind of button is the buttons that go against our rules. The buttons that go against um, the way that we're supposed to live and supposed to do things. And this is called Silabata Paramasa. 
funny that the Buddha thought that this was so important that he has it as the second fetter and that it deeply embeds with the first fetter of who am I? I'm the one who is subject to the rules. And when the rules go away, who the heck am I after all? Now I'm nothing left but the residue of the habits that were developed when the when those rules are in a force. But now that the rules are getting loosened, that also means that the personality or who I am starts to fade away also. I'm not sure anymore who I am. And basically what that means is, is that we're now more knowledgeable to the fact that we're actually a whole complete human being with many different facets covered with many different buttons that we're not who we think we are because when we think that we are something we're defining it in a very very small package and not taking the whole show into 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 um, our awareness but in fact, one of the things that I could say about that is, and you might guys might want to try this as an experiment. Today, sit down with a piece of paper or maybe several pieces of paper with thin lines on it so you've got a lot of room right small. And, and actually give a list item by item of who you are. And then take that piece of paper and file it away. And next week, repeat that and then one week later take those two pages out and compare them and you'll find that you're not the same as you were two weeks ago you're not even the same as you were one week ago that things are changing that you forget things you remember things you put that one on the list this time and then you forgot to put it on the list that time and in that regard we recognize that we're always a moving target Things are that complicated. Things are really, really complicated. And because they're so complicated, we tend to focus on one thing, whatever catches our eye, and not recognizing that all of the other stuff is there too. So this is what we have as a value for practicing Anapanasati, is to let the mind just go around visiting the various buttons with the intention of, I'm not going to push that one. I'm not going to push this one. That in fact, the buttons that are there, actually, we were probably pushing it before we recognized that we were. And so now we can say, ah, I had that thought that pushed that button. But now that I see that I'm pushing my own buttons, I can stop doing that. Okay. What kind of buttons do we have? All the I got to write an email to the boss. Oh, I've got to go shopping. Oh, the car needs uh, an oil change. Now, how many times have you actually changed the oil on a car in your mind before you actually change the oil at the dealership or wherever you get the oil changed? We think about things over and over and over again. We push that button, the car needs the oil change a dozen times before the button actually goes off and we actually go and change the oil. And so it's the button pushing that we do. It's the thoughts that we have, these small thoughts that need to be uh, worked on 
And so the, the next one that we could talk about, the ones that are knowledge, that we can know these things by knowledge. The third one, which is actually the most important one in this list, is doubt. So the first one is personality view. We start with, we know what our personality view is. As we begin to investigate, look, we begin to recognize that I'm a moving target, and that begins to brace doubt. Who am I? And the answer really basically is, is that that's an irrelevant question, because if you get an answer to it, it's just a concept. If you get an answer to that question, then uh, you're, you're holding on to a concept that may, in fact, not be true next week. And so we define ourselves as to who we think we are and not keep looking to the fact that we keep changing because we want to know who we are. We don't want to be filled with doubt about who I am. Well, there's more to that issue of doubt. And that is, is that the real issue of the doubt is not about who I am, but the real issue of the doubt is, do I know how to live? Because most of us don't. We don't know how to live. We're confused. We've got doubts about it. Now, there's another way of expressing what I just said, and that is um, in the suttas it says knowledge and vision of what is and what is not the path. And in this regard, the path is used in the sense of the path of my life. And when we and this is what the whole point about practicing the Buddha Dharma really is all about is because when we practice it and we see it, we gain trust, we gain knowledge, we gain a vision that this is the right way to do it. And when we have that, then we know that this is the path. This is the way to go in my life. But there's more to it, and that is, is that we have knowledge and vision of what is and what is not the path. Well, what is not the path is clearly any and everything that you've ever done because that didn't get you where we're going. So whatever we've been doing in the past, that's not it, guys. Let's go find out what really is the path. And what is the path is what we're talking about here is just to find out and get some knowledge about where those buttons are, to figure out where the buttons are because the buttons themselves don't define who you are. Sometimes those buttons work and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're visible and sometimes they're not. And so this is the first thing is that we have to become knowledgeable of where our buttons are. And guess what? By doing that, we find out that we're just like everybody else. More or less, we all have the same buttons. What are our buttons? Things that make us afraid. Things that make us greedy. Things that make us upset and angry. Those are where the buttons are. So, Alex, you've got a question. Yes, I uh, actually I wanted to see if you would expand on something you had said, because I think it goes so well with this uh, dispelling of doubt. In one of the Sangha UK calls, you talked about a didactic uh, success being wholesome, you know, but that it's so much nicer when you take that knowledge into the lab. Mm -hmm. And I hear what Corey's saying when he's talking about practice with others and with Sangha. And I hear, you know, we're exploring buttons 
and everything like that. And what I wonder is once we find the buttons, what is it that we're doing in practice that that changes it for us, that expels that doubt? OK, that's actually where we were going with it. As you remember, back in the first part of what we were talking about is, is that this the sutta has knowledge, but it also has um, dealing with things by their usage. And doing things to to actually avoid it. All right, so in the suttas, the things that we're going to actually use and we're going to um, eliminate the buttons or work that way is about the actual things that you have to have that you can't do without, without having some dukkha. An example of that is you're standing on the hot pavement barefoot, and it would be a good idea to step onto the grass. Or it might be a good idea to not walk on hot pavement without shoes on. So in this regard, we could say that shoes, some kind of shoes, is good, it's useful, because without those shoes, I'm in danger. And so I'm actually now looking at the whole idea of clothing, because it's not just the clothes. You need also to cover the private parts of whatever is decided in the culture that in fact is very interesting about the Buddha using the term private parts. That we use the clothing to conceal the private parts as well as for gadflies, for insects, um, things like that. So if you're riding a motorcycle, it would be good for you to wear eyeglasses or goggles or something to protect the eyes. But if you're not driving a motorbike, you don't necessarily need those kind of glasses. And so then. He doesn't need those glasses on when he's he's doing that for a show and people know that, OK, but there would be a time when we would need those glasses. There would be a time also in our culture, this island has different um, clothing standards. An example of that would be in some cultures, having your arms exposed is incorrect. You're supposed to be wearing a long white, long sleeve shirt with a tie and perhaps a suit jacket. And if you don't have that on, if you've got your shirt, your sleeves rolled up, you're inappropriately dressed. There are places like that. I mean, I was in business when I worked for IBM. We had to wear business suits and then get all of our white long sleeve shirts greasy. Because we weren't supposed to roll up our sleeves, we're supposed to be careful. Those those, by the way, those big clunking machines that we were uh, that I'm talking about, the, the unit record equipment was the size of an automobile and much more complicated than an automobile. And there was a lot of oil in those machines. So think about an automobile mechanic that's going to change the engine in a car in a white long sleeve shirt <laughs> and not get it greasy. <coughs> So on this island, it's just the opposite. Anything goes. I mean, you can see in signs in Florida where the restaurants will say no shirt, no shoes, no service. Have you ever seen that kind of sign? OK, why? 
because there's an option. They're they're trying to set the boundaries because most of the places people can go in the resort areas, no shirt, no shoes is perfectly okay. That's in fact the way that you would want to dress out on the beach. If you go out on the beach and put out your beach towel and your and you know your umbrella and all of your um, uh, picnic equipment, but you're dressed in a business suit with a long white long sleeve shirt, you're not dressed correctly, right? So part of what I'm getting at is is that the wisdom has to do with what kind of clothing is appropriate, and then we dress appropriately but we dress down within that range. In other words, whatever is easy enough, that's okay. But that we dress, we wear clothes for the appropriateness of the situation because we do have to deal with other people. That in fact, one of the, the things that's kind of a joke is, is that I don't wear shoes very often. Why? Because I don't go to town very often. If I go to town, if I go to the bank, I've got to get out of the car with the shoes on, walk across the street with the shoes on, and when I get to the door of the bank, I take the shoes back off <laughs> and walk into the bank barefoot. And then when we get out of the bank, we put the shoes back on, walk back to the car, get into the car, and take the shoes back off. <laughs> okay, why is that? Is because it's appropriate to wear shoes in town. That's the thing. It's appropriate to wear shoes in town. It's required. The same thing is with the shirt, except when I get to the door of the, of the bank, I don't take the shirt off also, just the shoes. It's appropriate to wear the shirt into the bank. Okay, so now we're talking about, well, what's the bottom line? Because in the sutras, it talks about just enough clothing, just enough shelter, just enough food, adequate, just enough medical attention. And you know that people in America, for instance, many of them are homeless. They have no um, uh, adequate clothing. They don't get fed well. And the big thing is, is that they don't get proper medical attention. And this is what causes a lot of suffering in the world is because we're not living up to our bottom line. Now, one of the things about Buddhist uh, with this practice is, is that we begin to play with and experiment and come to know what is our bottom line so that we can play with it, that that bottom line for each one of us is not fixed. Every one of us has that, a bottom line that's movable. And then, in fact, that's one of the things that we want to experiment with. Laurent, in fact, is here on this island. He's experimenting with what is his bottom lines trying to find out what these things are. What's the least amount that I can get away with in living? And then I don't have to work so hard to get all the extra stuff that I would have gotten if I had to get it. But now that I don't have to because I've changed my bottom line. Okay, so this is what the Buddha means by usage, that we're not going to avoid these things. We're going to wisely use them properly so that we don't have to, an example of, we don't have to go to the fancy restaurant every meal. That sometimes we can go to McDonald's. Sometimes we can skip a meal. Sometimes it will just have whatever is there. 
But if you have standards about what food you eat, you're go- those standards are going to make you unhappy. If we take the standards away about what I should be eating, then whatever's available will be good enough. This is one of the ways that we start practicing. The clothing that you've already got on is good enough. How long will it be good enough? 10 years, 15 years? I imagine the shirt that Laurent's got on, that will last him another 10 years. The jacket that David has got on, that'll last 10 or more years, maybe 15 years. I've got a jacket just like that that's probably about 15 years old now, and I still wear it from time to time. So, look at how much of our culture, though, has to do with you've got to be well-dressed, you've got to put on new clothes, you've got to keep filling the landfill with old clothes or give them away as hand-me-downs. And the way to look at it here is, is that, oh no, what I've already got is good enough. Eric, you got your hand up. Yeah, just a comment that an insight that's really helped my practice is to really know what it feels like to be wanting something and in a in a given moment when i want to like self-diagnose uh i ask myself am i wanting something right now am i wanting to do something and uh i know it's something something you you always say but really having a, a feel of of what it's like in the body and what it's like to relax that um is very useful and it connects to that like uh, we're want, we're wanting clothes we're wanting an entertainment and stuff and uh yeah we can just not not want as much or want a little bit less okay back to what corey was saying also is uh, based upon what you just said eric one of the things that we do quite often is want to not disturb someone, that we want to um, go along to get along. We want to fit in to whatever is going on, even if it's a pity party. This is part of our social behavior, and it comes instinctively. It's an instinct. And as you've heard me talk before, The way that we're going to be living correctly is by knowledge of our instincts and knowledge of which ones we can control, uh, let us say, wisely, and which ones we have to control as they come up. All right. So, um, Corey mentioned about um, eating cake or uh, eating some dessert. Here's the thing about that. If that cake that you want to eat is still in the store, 15 miles from here, and you want that cake, you got to go get in a car and drive to the store, go in there, and now you've got this store that's filled with all kinds of enticements, and you might wind up buying four, five, six things when you're in the store, all because you wanted cake. And then you come back home and you eat that cake. No, that generally doesn't happen. What happens instead is I have that thought of the cake. And if I can get that cake, I'll go get it. And if I can't, I'll do without. I remember that specifically when I was in the Watt, when uh, the 
the watch actually was uh, watch when moke the back of it is quite a hike up to the front of the watch which is where the food is even if the food is by a vendor i mean they've got a lot of street vendors that is right outside the watt door and that's true probably of every watt in thailand this is that there's a restaurant in front of every watt right and here it is two o'clock in the afternoon and i'm hungry and then i recollect yeah but it's going to be a 30 minute walk to go get something to eat and when I recognize that it's a 30 minute walk to go get something to eat, the desire to get something to eat goes down the cost of getting it. OK, so this is actually what we want to look at is, is that with wisdom, we want to keep the button issues distant. 30 minutes walk to get something to eat is going to keep you from eating so much. If it's if it's right in the house, if you've got it in the refrigerator, then it's easy pickings. We'll go get it. But if it's far distant, maybe not. OK, we got to want it really, really badly. To travel all the way to the store to get it. And so this is like a diet. If you're on a diet, the best way to have the diet is by not being around food. Don't go to a restaurant on a diet. If you're on a diet, don't go to the restaurant. That's the easy way out. Avoid the things that you actually want to avoid rather than bringing them close to you and then pretend that you want to avoid it. And how long can you avoid that piece of cake? It was sitting right in front of you. You know, you're going to think about it and look at it and think about it and then <laughs> go to <the> right. <laughs> But if it is nowhere around, OK, so this is one of the things that we can then do is by avoiding things completely. To keep them at a distance. If you know that you're going to have an argument with a particular person whenever you see them, then make sure you don't see them. Or see them coming first. Which is again about watching, being alert, being aware. I've mentioned this several times. I learned a very, very valuable lesson from a friend of mine. We were kind of the two of us were the only motorcycle gang in that particular town in South Carolina. But he taught me something extremely valuable and I didn't even recognize how valuable it was and how much Dhamma it was. But it's expressed like this. He says, you keep your eyes open. You see the cop before he sees you. If you can see the cop before he sees you, you're safe. But if you are not watching where you're going on that motorcycle and there's a cop around and he sees you before you see him, that's dukkha, that's dangerous, okay? Well, guess what? We now can take that little piece of advice to a teenager on his hot ride motorbike and apply it to everything in life. Be aware of what's going on around you. You see those cops. You see these guys with their buttons, Corey. You recognize that if you can see them coming, if you can see it first, you're the one in charge now. You've got the wisdom. You can see what's happening. All right, you got your hand up. 
Yes, um, I wanted to ask you. Um, so you avoid being exposed to to triggers, right? To maybe mm. some food that you you would crave. Um, but um, where's the the? Is there some value to to being exposed to it on on purpose and uh, you know just uh, as a way to 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 be faced with the craving to to kill it in a way to get rid of the craving that way you can walk freely in a restaurant and just order your salad you know instead of the the cheesecake and everything um, right. that you're not um, affected by it anymore what's the the path between the, the avoiding to, to to this one well that in fact when you did go into that restaurant and ordered a salad you probably in a way that we can speak of it you had already secluded your mind from the chocolate chip ice cream you didn't come in there for the chocolate chip ice cream that was not part of your mind state but if but, you come into the restaurant with chocolate chip ice cream on the mind, you pass right by the chocolate chip ice cream thing there, you look at it and then you go sit down. The likelihood of you ordering chocolate chip ice cream and a salad is much higher now. Yeah, yeah. It has to do with what mind state that you're in and that this is also the reason why we're going to be aware that when we walk into that restaurant, we're not here for that chocolate chip ice cream. We're here for the salad. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then, in fact, this is um, another example of this is uh, the Vipassana romance. Has anybody ever heard of the Vipassana romance? Okay. The typical Vipassana romance is, is that the guy, after a couple of days, he opens his eyes and he sees a couple of knees over there and wow, nice knees. And so he gets the idea, well, I'm supposed to be in silence, so I'll wait for the last day and then I'll go introduce myself. And so now he's thinking about where he's going to take these knees, etc., all over the place. And then the day of the um, retreat is finished and he goes looking for the lady and she's already left the retreat. She's gone. She didn't have a thought of him. But if we think that she's looking at us, that means that we're projecting. That we were looking at her, but she wasn't looking back. Or maybe worse still, she had already left the retreat with some other dude that she was thinking about. But that's the Vipassana romance is, is that so here's it. We go into a restaurant. And we walk right by that ice cream machine and now we want ice cream. We came in there for a salad. The same thing happens. We go into the retreat for the retreat and all of a sudden there's this ice cream machine. <laughs> <laughs> and we want ice cream now instead of the, uh, uh, the salad that we came in for. And so this is how the mind works. These are the triggers that we're talking about. And the important thing is to be aware of that stuff, to notice it. Rather than letting it happen ignorantly, that we become wise to what we're doing. We become wise to where our triggers are. And we have the choice once we know those triggers of either using them wisely or avoiding them wisely. 
And so this is the, uh, the, the practice, but we have to become knowledgeable of them first. And we don't like a lot of the stuff. That's why we want we, we have not been knowledgeable of it is because we didn't like it. We didn't want to think that that's who I am. And so uh, we go around with a lot of avoidance. And this is what we would then refer to basically as a little white lie or when we tell lies. Why do we tell lies? Why do humans lie to each other? You got a clue? Eric, do you know why humans lie to one another? How about you, Corey? Because truth safety. doesn't exist. Pardon? Manipulate others for our own safety. Ah, so we lie to people because we're afraid. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so we lie to people because we're afraid that we'll get caught. So we're afraid that we'll get caught because we're doing something wrong and we do not want to be known for doing things wrong and so we'll 